This is Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication on the No Direction Network. Danielle, Denise, and Ben interview tabletop designers on the games they've made. Together, they unbox how a game went from inspiration to publication. Thank you for joining me and Danielle for Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication, episode 17, Sagrada. Today, we are joined by none other than Daryl Andrews, designer of Sagrada, Bosque, Seven Summits, Batman, The Dark Knight Returns, Kodama 3D, Back to the Future, Out of Time, and so many other games. Daryl, thank you and welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks. The first question that we always like to ask our guests is, how did you get into the gaming industry? So, Daryl? How did you get into the gaming industry? Uh, yeah, well, for myself, uh, I definitely grew up and always loved board games. Never thought about that as a job, uh, just as a hobby and something fun that I enjoyed. And I never even really knew, didn't think I knew any designers or anything like that. But I ended up, um, because of my love for board games, finding out that uh, one of my favorite games at the time was designed uh, by now a friend of mine, Sen Fong Lim. Uh, and he lived in the same city as me and I had been organizing some board game tournaments. And so finding out he was local, I suggested that you know he could come out, meet some people and, uh, and then through getting to know him and becoming friends, um, he challenged me to start considering game design. I was you know, as we got to know each other, I started doing some playtesting with him and uh, and then eventually uh, joined this organization called the Game Artisans of Canada, uh, which is a, a mentorship program where, uh, you know, accomplished designers like Sen Fong Lim um, are willing to give time to to come alongside people and mentor them towards the goal of making games and uh, having them publisher where ready. So that was that was kind of like uh, my introduction to the idea of being a game designer and and through relationships like Sen and 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 others that I met along the way uh, that really opened some doors for me to try to design and, and get into the industry. And that's really cool to hear, Daryl, because I think. You may not know this, but uh, you're a pretty popular name, I would say, in the industry now. And it's just so kind of humbling and hopeful, uh, inspiring for, I think, a lot of our listeners to hear that a hobbyist, you know, someone who happens to be playing games can become somebody who also designs them. So thank you for for being a shining example. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, uh, I, I do think that's one of the beautiful things about board games is that there is like a lot of opportunity and accessibility to make a game. It, it is uh, a lot to learn and a lot of struggles along the way, but it's possible. It's You don't have to know how to code. You don't need to, uh, you know, have like an expensive camera to make a movie. Uh, the beauty of board games is you can just cut up some pieces of paper and start, you know, designing a game. You can start you know, even just making some house rules with your favorite games and and right away you're you're already a designer. You're totally right. And I love the fact that the community you guys have out there is just so strong, just talking to Erica, talking to you and 
quite a few other Canadians. Like, you guys have it going on. It always surprises me that you don't have more conventions out there. Like, maybe you don't even need it because your, like, groups are just so good. Yeah, it is It is very funny to me that we don't have the conventions, and it's actually pretty typical and maybe almost like a bonding thing that a lot of Canadians, when they travel to the States um, for conventions, you kind of, like, find each other and, and try to encourage and support each other in some little way. But uh, we are really blessed with some, you know, great designers. And I think also that just goes to prove that like representation and seeing examples of others is so important. I think of someone like Eric Lang, who is such an accomplished designer. And, and I think he really forged the way for a lot of us of just kind of seeing someone who was making incredible games and someone that we knew. That is so cool. And then let's get down to Sagrada. That is what we're going to mostly be talking about, but I know we're going to definitely go a lot of different other directions. But what inspired you to design Sagrada in the first place? Yeah, it's uh, it was a journey. I mean, uh, Adrian, Adam Eskew, and myself, we had started designing a few games together and at the time we didn't we didn't have anything signed but we definitely had a handful of games that we were play testing and working on together we discovered each other just actually through networking and finding out that you know we lived in the same city and and we both were trying to design games and get games uh published i had um my first game i think was published the walled city Uh, but beyond that i don't think anything had reached market yet and uh, we started working on on Sagrada in about, I think it was 2015. And uh, it started actually from uh, an idea. Um, it's called the, the five color theorem. And uh, people are maybe familiar with it when they look at something like a map for like postal codes or different things like that. And the idea is that you can color the different regions and you always have two different colors next to each other so that you can kind of differentiate the different areas of the map. And that theorem um, really resonated with Adrian. He's very much like a math-oriented guy. He, at the time, was working on his PhD in chemistry. And um, we were bouncing back and forth this idea of how could we use this in a game as kind of a launching point of just like, that's interesting, you know, having different colors next to each other. Yeah. And then as we just were playing around with components, we started playing around with dice and thinking, oh, well, that would be fun. Also, if different colors couldn't be next to each other, but also different numbers couldn't be next to each other. And that started the puzzle. And then we got to a place where we had kind of like half of the game designed, but it felt so abstract. And especially at the time, there wasn't really a lot of games out there that seemed successful that were abstract. So we we kind of put it yeah. on our back burner. We, we decided to kind of take a break with that game and, and um, just work on some other games. And, uh, and I think that's really good advice for people is sometimes when you hit a wall, like it's good to kind of step away and start working on something else. So we worked on other games and then fast forward, I, uh, ended up going to, um, Barcelona and being really inspired by the Sagrada Familia and, and that kind of fast forwarded the rest of the design, the rest of the kind of the game clicked after that experience. I'm not, I've been to see the Sagrada and it is amazing. Like I wasn't sure if I was more impressed with the stained glass, like looking from the inside or the outside and being like, oh, so that's where a lot of the inspiration of Star Wars came from. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, it's so great. And for anybody who hasn't played Sagrada, would you mind going over the rules and technique of how to play? 
Sure. I mean, uh, I will say that designers are horrible at teaching games. So there's my caveat that, uh, well, I shouldn't nice. say all designers. But you pitch but your games. Come on. I do. I do pitch my games. I, I, I also will confess that I'm really bad at rule books. Anyone who's worked with me knows that. So certain designers are really good at that. I am not. But I will, I will say that, uh, you know, the quick overview of Sagrada is that you are drafting these translucent, pretty colorful dice and you're adding them into a grid in front of each individual player and you're trying to make a stained glass window. And kind of like Sudoku, you have a few restraints where you can't have the same number next to each other, the same color. So it kind of becomes this little puzzle experience where as you're drafting the dice, you need to add them either orthogonally or diagonally attached to previously drafted dice. Along the way, while you're trying to solve this puzzle, there's a few public objectives and that's how you're going to score is you're going to score points for accomplishing the different public objectives that are on display and you can play with a different mix uh, every time. And then everyone has a private uh, goal. Uh, in the standard version, it was that you got a, a secret color that you really cared about and you counted all the pip value, so the numbers on your dice of that one color. And then you added that score at the end of the game, hopefully filling all the spots and scoring as many points as you can, comparing your score to the other players around the table. That was pretty good for saying you you can't teach a game. <laughs> well, I mean, Sagrada thankfully has done well enough that I've I've had to teach it a lot of times, and so I, I'm I'm getting better at teaching it. But I will con- you know anyone who has heard me uh, teach a game sometimes. Uh, I can get lost in the weeds of describing too much of the game because as a designer, sometimes you're really excited about all the little things that other people don't really care about. Yeah, I get that. Definitely get that. And well, things that people do care about uh, here with this show is is how playtesting looked and development for uh, our guests' games. So would you be able to entail or uh, go into a little bit kind of how the game started, maybe what its first prototype looked like to uh, where it it ended up being. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And early on, I would really encourage anyone, don't spend too much time trying to make your prototype incredibly professional or finished. We used a lot of placeholder art. You know, we just found some pictures and, um, and used that for our prototypes. Our prototype, like for instance, we didn't have the fancy inlaid, um kind of boards we just had a flat piece of paper with a grid that you fit the dice on um for for us though like one of the real telling moments was while we were early on play testing it we found when people finished they wanted to take a photo of the we didn't even know it was a window at the time but just of their little collection of dice in front of them and we thought that was a really interesting tell that people are kind of like proud of what they created. Mm -hmm. And ever since I've always kind of looked for that now is this moment of like when someone wants to almost right away share their experience or share what they've done, that that's usually a sign that you're on the right track. Oh yeah. You definitely have a great table presence for this game. Yeah. And, and so that really helped. We, again, early on we had, for instance, the different scorecards, you know, we used a lot of like, just like card sleeves and we kept, you know, shoving in different pieces of paper, pulling it out, adjusting the numbers, tweaking things here or there. And the nice thing is we've, we've also established some really good play testers in the area and play testing is an acquired skill. You know, everyone who likes board games doesn't necessarily like play testing because True. there's, there's pauses, there's times that people have to take breaks 
And also, like, sometimes the game's broken and can be not so fun sometimes. So Yeah, and people get kind of stuck on how it's not that beautiful or it's kind of abstract in the doodles on the index cards. Exactly, yeah. People, I mean, you have to have kind of an imagination to be able to be open-minded to a prototype, especially a rough one. And so we, we've discovered some people that are better at early stage testing. And then we've discovered some people that are better later in the process. And there's no better or worse. It's just some people are more wired for one of those versus the other. If someone's really detail oriented, then that's a great person to like have check your rule book or look for, you know, in, in, you know, inconsistencies. And so those things are really good skills, but we've learned who's better at that. And also we've, we've learned better at, at communicating expectations. So before a play test saying things like, Hey, we're not looking at this kind of feedback, but we're looking for that kind of feedback and just giving direction to kind of the play test has really helped us find the results we're looking for. And how did you find floodgate as your partner for publishing this game? Yeah, that's a, a kind of a, a funny story for us. Um, at the time, we were designing a bunch of games, and one of the roles that I do is all the pitching. So Adrian, most people have never met Adrian. The joke was that like some people didn't even believe Adrian was real because he never goes to conventions, uh, and that's because he has four oh. little ones, oh, yeah. and he's very busy at home. And uh, I also love pitching versus Adrian is very shy and doesn't want to be on a microphone. Um, So we kind of gravitate to which roles that we feel are our strengths. So I had pitched the game actually around to a few different publishers um, and actually seven publishers ended up taking the prototype for evaluation, but not signing the game. So it was a bit of a roller coaster and an encouragement because I pitched it to way more than seven But even every time one of those kind of felt like it was getting close, it didn't work out. And uh, finally, um, Floodgate, actually, it was a very quick experience, um, which was unusual uh, for me. I had never experienced this before, but I was at a convention in Grand Rapids um, called GrandCon. And and while I was there, Ben Harkins, the owner of Floodgate, was there. And the funniest part was I had a whole bunch of prototypes ready and I had contacted a whole bunch of different publishers, but I was only there for one day. And so uh, right when the hall um, closed, I ran to all the publishers and said, hey, which one of you has time to like see one of these games I contacted you about? And all of them left for dinner. And I was like, oh, man, like I only have so much time. And, uh, and so the funny part was Ben was one of, one of the first to come back from dinner. So the reason I had a meeting with him and I had meetings scheduled with a bunch of other publishers, um, and, and in hindsight, a few of them have like kind of, uh, bugged me about, Hey, what if I had come back from dinner earlier? And I joke that maybe then they would have published the grata, but, um, I ended up sitting down playing, First, a game that I thought Floodgate would be most interested in, which never ended up being a thing. And then I was about to show a second game. And actually, Emily, um, Ben's partner, said, hey, do you have anything quick before I go to bed? I'd love to just play something quick and fun. And I said, oh, well, why don't you try this game? I don't think this is a good game for Floodgate, but I do need playtests. And I played Sagrada with them. Because at the time, I I didn't really know what Floodgate wanted, but 
it didn't really match the games that they had previously published. Yeah. We ended up playing Sagrada. It went awesome. We had a lot of fun. Emily went to bed. I ended up showing a couple more games to Ben, and we, we kind of like ended it. I showed a couple other. I think I showed one other publisher a few games, and then I had to go. So I got in the road, and while I was driving home from Grand Rapids, like that night, I got a phone call from Ben saying, hey, I'm thinking about that game some more. Let's talk about that soon. And then the next day, he called me back and said, you know what? I'm prepared to sign that. I just, I dreamt about it. And Emily won't stop talking about it, so I'd better sign that game. And so Emily gets a huge assist for being the, to, in my opinion, the, the reason that, that it ended up with, with Flex. That's cool. Basically a wing person. That's amazing. <laughs> so, yeah, kind of jumping right along, that's kind of when, uh, when the game was sort of signed. And then uh, all the process kind of leading up to, it was a Kickstarter, if I recall correctly. Um, how did... How did yeah. that feel for you, Daryl? Was that kind of like your first crowdfunding experience? And, you know, by the time that the campaign was done and people were, were receiving their games, just everything that you got, uh, all your emotions that were that you were being flooded with, please uh, feel free to open open those gates for us. <laughs> I see what you did there. Thank you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it was definitely my first experience with Kickstarter. And, and to be honest, at the time, I was a little disappointed and, and a little worried I was like, oh, like, what if it doesn't fund? Does that mean the game won't get made? Like, those were all my worries and concerns. Sure. Uh, thankfully, um, they uh, Floodgate had already done um, a few successful Kickstarters, even though they were kind of one of the, the early publishers to use it. And uh, the other thing that Ben did, which was significant, and in hindsight, I realized how risky it was that he did this, but he actually spent a large portion of time, like I want to say six to eight months promoting the game before he even launched the Kickstarter, including he went to Gen Con and he spent um, a lot of money for a booth and used the majority of his booth space just for demoing the game months before he actually ended up kickstarting the game, which was like a huge risk because a, he wasn't making as much money at Gen Con, but as well, he was promoting a game that he was hoping caught people's imagination and got people excited and that they would still, you know, do, you know, support the Kickstarter a month down the road after the fact. So uh, way to go, Ben, for taking that risk, because I think he he really helped set set us up for a very successful campaign because he did catch like a lot of people and a lot of people like took pictures and learned the game and felt you know, kind of comfortable with the game so that by the time the Kickstarter went up, there was a lot of champions and a lot of people that were willing to share it on social media. And so it, it funded at the time for us really well. Um, and we were really excited and proud of that. But then there was that long gap of waiting for the game to actually be published, get into people's hands. That's nerve wracking. Kickstarter is nerve wracking. The wait afterwards, nerve wracking. And then because Floodgate, um, is a small was especially at the time a, a very small publisher um the a good problem but bad problem was uh, it kept selling out right away so he would get a shipment and and again had to make a modest print run because wasn't sure didn't want to get stuck with extra inventory so we ended yeah. up having really good sales but then the game disappearing and being gone from the market for a few months and then it would come back and it would sell really fast and then disappear again and so that took a while for 
for Ben to kind of figure out what was the right kind of amounts to print and, and also kind of like figure out all kind of the logistics of that in the long run, it worked in our favor, but we were always worried like, Oh, well, what if the weight, you know, people move on or, or, uh, don't care about the game anymore. And so that was, that was always kind of a fear of ours, especially for the first couple of years. And so was that what kind of brought you to the decision of adding on an expansion and I hear a legacy version of the game? Yeah, well, you are well informed. Uh, yeah, the the irony is um, the expansions. Uh, Adrian and I designed basically after we signed the game. And and for anyone familiar with kind of contract negotiations and signing a game, it's not always like an instant scenario. So even though Ben said that he wanted to sign the game, it took some time to figure out all the paperwork, go back and forth with questions and whatnot. And so because we were so excited with the game and we had little loose ideas already from even the base design, we started working on, and probably within the six first six months of the game being signed, we had all, all the facades and all that kind of stuff designed. There was very few things that we needed to design more. And we ended up signing that all as well, six months later over to Ben. And then Ben strategically decided to kind of space it out. Floodgate wanted to be able to give the different expansions over time to continue to support the line. And then uh, this year, we submitted at uh, the beginning of this year, Sagrada Legacy, which we had been working on for the last couple of years, and we're really excited and proud of. And so they're, they're doing the graphic design and some final play testing, especially with, with, with the graphic design, trying to kind of get that all ready for a future Kickstarter that'll maybe be the end of this year. It might even push into early next year just because of covid craziness oh, for sure i mean but that's still super exciting yes yeah we are very excited about it coming out and um yeah it's, it's weird because i've just spent the last couple of years like play testing and working on it so i'm waiting for it to be you know people out in the world can see it and and get it i love it i love it and i also yeah just love expansion in general so uh what a fun thing maybe to know uh for for us who are you know geeks about games is does the expansion idea at least in the case of sagrada daryl uh was the expansion idea something that you guys kind of created separately after the base game or was it something that was kind of part of the original pitch that was maybe cut in favor of a a more streamlined kind of system yeah there was definitely a lot of um little ideas or parts of the expansion that we had and kind of were like kind of the parts that we kind of streamlined the game and chipped away at and thought like oh this part's fun and this part's fun but this feels like too much early on like as a core experience and we never knew if they would ever be able to be reintroduced Mm -hmm. but we really wanted to prioritize that the first few times that you played the game it was accessible. And so that meant trying to streamline the edge cases or kind of the harder to understand rules. So that was often some of the expansion material that we had, but we just didn't know how to present it and didn't know how to kind of develop or, or kind of package it together. So that was definitely part of it. Another significant part of it was uh, the original game. And because there's so many dice uh, pretty early on, it was determined that um, Sagrada needed to be a, a, a two to four player game. And, um, and so we didn't have the dice or components to do five or six players, um, because the price point of the game was already so high for, for sure. um, you know, a quote unquote filler game. So whenever I was pitching it to people, uh, a lot of publishers would turn it down and say, there's no way anyone would pay more than 
20 bucks for a dice game uh, or things like that. So that quickly became like, well, how can we keep the price down? And so that those limitations was, was a major factor. The other was that we didn't want the five or six player experience to feel too long or to feel out of control because of the time in between your turns. So um, until we came up with what we have now, which is a rose window where you have half your dice that are predetermined in your personal display and that you're only drafting every other round um, out of the public pool, until we kind of developed that, we weren't happy with a higher player count. And so once we really kind of captured that, that was you know, a very happy moment for us, especially um, I was more focused on trying to kind of work on a higher player count. And then Adrian was more focused on the one player experience. So he also did a lot of work towards um, developing and kind of shaping that versus at the time I never, I never played one player games. Um, so, so he was more skilled and more mindful of that. And so we kind of leaned into, again, what, what our strengths were and then, and then bounced off the ideas off each other as we got closer and closer. Yeah, that's really great that your two skill sets basically, yeah, just complement each other so well. Uh, I do have to make, while we're here, a uh, an embarrassing confession uh, is that when I when I teach the game for the first time, I actually just totally ignore the tool cards because I'm afraid that uh, they're going to maybe hunker down or, or weigh people uh, the, for the first time playing it a bit too much in terms of uh, trying to bring in new people to the hobby because absolutely, Sagrada is one of my favorites to uh, use as kind of a, a gateway game or an entry point uh, into the the modern board games uh so yeah like with my parents and things i'll play the game and we just won't really worry about those but having the option and then of course uh for anyone who's interested in having those uh additional possibilities with each expansion is uh such a such a great thing yeah i mean you when i taught it even earlier i did not mention the tools so i i, I agree with Possible. you Ben. i think it, it adds like a little layer there so um originally actually even the tools weren't tools they were artists and you would hire different artists to help you with your stained glass windows and then ben came up with the idea of of making them tools and we thought oh that's a really great idea and then we deep dived into all the different types of tools that are used in stained glass and it's been really fun over the years having stained glass artists like reach out and and kind of like compliment us on our use of some of those so that's been kind of a a fun little silver lining Well, maybe we can expect some artists uh, in an upcoming or a future expansion, too. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, it's funny. Anything that hits the cutting room floor but has some merit to it always seems to kind of find a way uh, back into a game if there's opportunity. So um, that's my encouragement to designers is, you know, don't uh, worry about cutting things out. Just save it, put it to the side, and it might not even be in the same game. But those ideas you really want to focus on making the best experience for that product and for that, you know, that story or that experience. And then, and then, you know, don't feel bad about things you cut there. There's going to be lots of opportunities to use things in new ways and in fresh ways down the road. It's so true. I have thrown away pieces of games and then made completely new games out of them. So absolutely, I love it. I love it so much. And as far as how long it took from going from that inspiration to having Sagrada initially published after the Kickstarter, do you have any idea of what that time span looked like? Yeah, I I like to share with people because it is a long process. And sometimes people just think games just like magically appear super fast. But um, we started working on the game uh, in 2015. 
um, and the game, uh, or maybe even a little bit into 2014, um, where the game was like kind of inspired and first thought of, first tested. And it wasn't until uh, early 2016 that it got signed and it didn't really come to market until 2017, uh, just to give a little bit of a timeline. And that was even, I would say, because of that being four years ago, things were even kind of faster back then. I would say yeah. that things are even slower now. And, and thankfully, at the time, Floodgate was kind of like signing their next game. It wasn't like, oh, you're one of like, you know, you're on your, you're our sixth game from now. It was very much, uh, yeah, we're working on one game right now and you're our next one. And, and also had kind of their full attention uh, versus a lot of the times you might uh, sign a game with a publisher that has many things going on and it depends yeah. on where you fit in the schedule and, and it might even get pushed forward or backwards. So I've had games take even much longer, but um, yeah, it's, it's a process and some games will work out faster and some can be quite slow. Um, I'd mention as like a, a, an, an example at the very same time as that we were designing Sagrada, we, we were designing another dice game because we were just like in the mindset and headspace of drafting dice and we designed Seven Summits and Seven Summits has just come out now in 2021. So very same time working on the same games and yet very different timelines. Oh my God, you're totally right. It is funny when you get into like a mindset of a theme or a mechanic or even just a component and you keep designing based off of it. I yeah. Well, and I just think there's lots of like, again, talking about things that like reach your cutting room floor or even just like you trying to think of things in different ways, your head space and you're already kind of mentally tackling some of the same problems. And so those solutions and the things that you're thinking about and what you're interested in are going to be really useful for other things. So for instance, I just did a one player game with, uh, with Morgan Donteville, the, the Batman dark Knight returns game. And that was designed as a solo game experience yet back when we were doing Sagrada, I didn't even play solo games, but now I'm very much, especially during COVID thinking a lot about solo game experiences and what about them, you know, works and what doesn't work. And so while I'm wrestling with those kind of things, it makes me think of a bunch of games kind of solving that problem or that question of, you know, what would be a good one player game. And so we, at the time were really playing around with dice a lot. So that became, you know, what could we do differently, but still with dice drafting. That is so interesting. I know a lot of people do complain when it comes to a solo game that they hate playing for themselves and almost like a second or even a third player. And there's even those games where they say it can play at two players, but really someone has to play as a third player as well. Yeah. Finding a way to avoid that issue is always interesting to me. Yeah, no, I, I think there's going to actually be a, a nice wave of one player games or games that also in like very intentionally thought of the one player experience because of this time that we've had. And I, I'm looking forward to, you know, in the next few years in the market, uh, seeing lots of different solutions and different uh, ideas that then will inspire the next. And we kind of like rise on the shoulders of the last idea to kind of challenge ourselves and challenge each other uh, to come up with new twists and new combinations. And, and so innovation doesn't have to be absolutely different. It can just be incremental. It can be this way of taking something familiar and then 
giving it a twist. I completely agree. I have found it so interesting that some designers just have their brain set for these one player and they get hired, especially just to develop the one player version of games. And they may have not gotten that chance earlier, or maybe they would have had only one or two games, but now they have credits in so many more rule books. And I think that's awesome. That opportunity is there. And I mean, clearly there's a need for it, especially with what everything has been going on. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think there's just a lot more people kind of listening and finding ways to get involved in one way or another. And, and then you learn from that. I know for myself, like other people giving me little opportunities, I tried to take those little opportunities and glean and learn from them. Uh, anything from uh, early on, I got to sit in, uh, for instance, Jake Cormier, uh, who's part of the Bamboozle Brothers, who co-designs a lot of games with Sen Fong Lim, he would let me sit in on a lot of his pitches and be kind of a wingman. And that experience of just being there, helping to you know clean up between games or listen to him pitch and build those relationships, those that was huge for me and gave me a lot of insight on kind of how the sausage was made and also just building relationships so that I knew who to talk to and who to present games to and how to present games after the fact. That's so amazing. You got to be that fly on the wall and pick up all that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really important for designers to try to find ways to do that and kind of pay that forward. If that's anything from mentoring or even just being on uh, shows like yours where people can learn from others and, and then also, uh, kind of finding others to do that with. So I know for myself, um, I've now co-designed with a lot of different people. And one of the things that I really enjoy about co-design, especially finding newer designers, is, is bringing them alongside and, and giving them opportunities to practice and grow and, and try pitching and, and really, um, hopefully, uh, leverage the opportunities I have to lift other people up. I love that so much. That was a question I was going to ask. Like, what makes a good design partner for you? Because I have noticed that you do tend to pick newer, fresh talent. Granted, they tend to be going at your speed very easily. Yeah, I mean, I at the end of the day, you never know until you try to do something together and, and not every opportunity works out. And definitely something that works uh, for me is that I kind of run at 100 and if someone can keep up, then that will work well. And so someone like yeah. Erica Boyoris is just crazy talented and, and we clicked really well and we were able to work well together. But I, I think also depending on who I'm matched up with, I, I'm a bit of a chameleon and so I kind of try to adapt or complement their skill set and try to develop their strengths um, through the relationship. So I, I, uh, I think that's a thing. And then I also just think like at the end of the day, it's, it's also, you, you like working with people you like getting along with. And so I've built some good friendships. And so it's been just also an excuse to do things together with people that I care about. So, um, yeah, that's, that's been a, a kind of the deciding factor and I'm trying to reach out to more and more people and even, um, do a one-off with someone or, or find different ways to collaborate in kind of special ways. Um, recently I got to do a collaborative, uh, work on a design with Wolfgang Kramer and he's oh, like nice. one of my heroes. Um, and so that, for example, really opened my eyes to how cool it would be to work with even more people. And so I'm trying to find little ways to 
to reach out and and find excuses to do projects with different people. And so when it comes to things like that, is it you have an idea and you know of a designer that you think would just help move that forward because of maybe a game that they've designed previously? Or is it you're just like, hey, you and me, I think we would work well together. Like, let's sit down, let's throw some spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah, I, I think it's a bit of everything. So I, I've definitely had conversations where I've just said, like, I like what you do, or I think it'd be fun to do something together. And some of that would be, like you said, just throwing some ideas back and forth and see which one both of you are really excited about. And um, sometimes it's, you know, you see early on a game, maybe at a, a convention, or you hear, you see a picture on online or something, and the game's early on, and you can reach out one way or the other and say, that sounds interesting. Would you ever want to work on that together? Um, there's a few people that just, um, they seem kind of like they make certain type of games. And so some people I've reached out to and just said like, hey, I've always wanted to make a game like that. Would you ever want to do something together? Um, and and then, yeah, just listening, just finding opportunities. Um, conventions I've, I've found in the past was a really great way of just meeting people and and just like getting to know each other over a meal or something and seeing if, if something kind of lines up or is inspiring that has some overlap. You know, I'm not sure if you remember the first time that we met, but we met at one of the Panda manufacturing parties and you had just released your Sinister Six game. And I started debating, I was like, why isn't there a girl here? And we were like talking about how Spider-Man has like all these really great male characters. And I was like, but I want Black Cat because I was such a nerd. And I don't know if you remember this, but I love talking about these superheroes with you. And then I realized later on, I was like, Oh my God, I just realized who I was talking to. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I honestly did not remember that. And I'm sorry, but I'm that you're totally fine. I was a newbie. <laughs> oh, but that's awesome. And I'm, I love that kind of conversation. So in general, like any chance I get to talk about games and, and themes uh, of, of games, like those are the things that I'm into. So I am confident in saying that I probably love the conversation but I don't remember it in particular. <laughs> no, you're good. It was funny because my friend was like, do you know who you were just talking to for like this long? I was like, no, wait. And I was like, oh man, I need to have him sign my game. Not <laughs> uh, too funny. <laughs> oh. So to circle back, you said you were designing Sagrada at the same time as Seven Summits, which just released recently. Do you want to talk through and compare just like the process of designing those two at the same time and just how the two of them were different, similar? Because you worked on it with the same co-designer, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Both games were co-designs with uh, Adrian Adamescu. And uh, for us, uh, it's funny because... Uh, Seven Summits now, for anyone uh, familiar with it, it's uh, a racing game where you're trying to race up uh, the highest mountain for each continent. So that that challenge uh, is called the Seven Summits. And so the game was this idea of racing up each of these mountains that are kind of quote unquote to scale. And you're racing your different figures up them. And we were originally playing around with this idea of it'd be neat when you're drafting your dice that the dice mean multiple things at the same time. So you could draft a die to race up. You could draft a die to like improve your, your skills. So we had like a training track and then we were like, Oh, it'd be neat if any die could go up Everest and et cetera. So while we were playing around with that, that was kind of spun out of 
because we were designing Sagrada and Sagrada, we were like, oh, imagine you could do more things with your dice. And so that became kind of our answer was that we started designing Seven Summits as like a different way or a different reason or motivation for drafting dice. And then over time, the, the game Seven Summits evolved and changed. We actually signed it with a publisher, uh, Mayday Games. And, and I think we may have even signed it before Sagrada. It was close. I think like, yeah. I think they were very similar time, but unfortunately with Mayday, um, it got developed, it got worked on. Actually, um, Daniel, one of their internal um, developers came up with a whole new system instead of numbers on the dice. And um, it was interesting. It was like a, a just a, a different take on it. And it evolved to the point that they even had like hired an artist and brought on Quan Chai to be like the box cover. And he started doing some art and then wow. Mayday changed gears. They just um, got out of making games and just making card sleeves at the time. And uh, the game came up uh, like they had mentioned to us, if, if there's another publisher interested, you know, let us know. And, and eventually they ended up giving me back the game. And I spent an Origins, uh, which for anyone who's unfamiliar with, Origins is a convention that happens in Columbus, Ohio, uh, run by Gamma and uh, the, the, the Game Manufacturers Association. And uh, while at that convention, I kind of shopped around uh, this game. And the funnest part about it was I had some art already from Quan Chai, which normally a prototype, at least my prototypes are pretty hideous. Um, <laughs> they definitely don't look like what Quan Chai does. So I just posted just the cover and said, if anyone's interested in this game, let me know. And I've never had so many publishers willing to take a meeting. Uh, so I got to show it to a lot of people and in the meeting I had with, um, deep water, I actually got to meet with L and with Nolan. Um, and the two of them, the meeting was legitimately one of the most emotional pitch meetings I've ever had. It was actually really neat. Um, we got to sit down and it was a bit of a moment because Nolan and L mentioned that one of the games that really inspired them to start making deep water, being a publisher and making games was Sagrada. And that for them, there was a bit of a moment to just even listen to a pitch from me. And oh, that, that was a real humbling moment for me. So sweet. Right. And it was just like really special. And so I showed them the game. They loved it. And I was just like, it was a weird, like I had to have a poker face cause I had other meetings already scheduled and I wanted to respect those other meetings, but Deep you down, like in your heart. Yeah, exactly. It was just kind of like, how could it be better than this? You know, the, it was just so heartfelt that they legitimately like just were really passionate about it and really wanted to do something together that how could I say no to that? Like that's that's the dream as a designer to have a publisher that really believes in the game and is really, you know, heartfelt about it. So, it you know, at the end of Origins, I remember actually a couple publishers being a little annoyed that I said no to them. Uh, that expressed interest and and hopefully I didn't burn those bridges, but I was really proud to to get to sign the game with them and they took their time. They they really loved the game and wanted to do it justice. So they took their time and they actually had John Brigger and his team do some development on the game and really like polish some some of the rough edges and and now it's out. We're really excited for people to experience it. That's so amazing. I love that. Especially after having it with a different company and then it finding its secondary home, but it just being that good of a home. 
Right. I mean, it was so like a roller coaster because for us at the time when we signed it, it so early on, we were excited. Then it was taking forever and we were getting really discouraged. Then it was returned, which unfortunately has become like a bit of a trend in the last few years is like publishers realizing they have too many games. For, and so we got this game back and we were like, oh, we got to go through this whole thing again. And then in the end, it was like a really positive experience. So it just, again, that's why I share that is because, you know, Sagrada has been a really positive experience for me and that went well. And, and, you know, it took a few years and there was still a lot of no's along the way. But even Seven Summits, I can look back at that and say, you know, that that was six or seven years and I'm still really thankful for the journey it went through and and hopeful that people will discover it now and find it and enjoy it. Well, I'm sure people will definitely find it and enjoy it. And as far as Sagrada goes, I mean, Ben had kind of said earlier on that it is growing in popularity. It's starting to not only appear in like hobby game stores, but even in large retail stores. How does that make you feel as a designer to see that happen and see it grow in popularity? Yeah, it's, it's really humbling. I mean... That was really uh, not something we thought was even possible, especially once we we signed with Floodgate. We kind of had already emotionally and mentally said to ourselves, like, okay, we signed it with a small publisher. That means, you know, it'll probably only get a few, you know, maybe one or two print runs. And we're, we're okay with that. At least someone will get to try it out. But then as it kept catching on, and really this is a testament to the fans that really, like, showed that, you know, keep supporting this and, and, and we're buying it for their friends, buying it for their family that just kind of opened a lot of doors for us. And so it was, it was pretty cool to get to go into, you know, a big box store. Um, you know, it's still amazing to see a game in, in my friendly local game store, but it was, it was a different kind of special to see something out in the quote unquote real world where like my family members would be like, Oh, it really does exist. And you know, I'd get pictures from different people just being like, Hey, I saw your game and they weren't a gamer. They just were a friend that just happened to see it. So, um, that was, that was pretty, pretty cool. That is so cool. And when did you learn that floodgate was partnering with direwolf to create the digital app version of the game? Yeah, again, this is a kind of a weird full circle, but I ended up um, a few years back uh, meeting the president of of Direwolf at um, at San Diego Comic Con of all places, and they had a booth showing off some of their apps, some early game apps they did. And uh, I, I, if I was into Pokemon, I would have known them already. Or Eternal, they was a really successful app of theirs, but I wasn't familiar yeah. with those. But once they made board games, they were instantly on my radar, and I had downloaded those. And so when I finally met Scott Martin, the president at Direwolf, I kind of gushed over how cool it was, and and I hope they do more board games. And actually, long story short, Scott actually flew me out to Denver and interviewed me, and I almost ended up working for uh dire wolf no um, way yeah That's so cool. yeah so it was pretty fun getting to meet their team especially paul denon who's the main designer of clank and all the amazing expansions and such they've done and now they have dune imperium um so they they were already starting to cook up they had clank out but they hadn't done anything any of the expansions or any of that hadn't come out yet and so when i went to interview it was to work with their team uh, long story short, I didn't take the job because I ended up starting a publishing company myself. 
which is a whole nother journey and maybe a whole nother episode. Uh, but um, anyways, long story short, I got to meet them and, and connect uh, Scott with Ben. So they started having conversations about, well, you know, I might not work for Direwolf, but it would be really cool if, if Sagrada was an app and you two should talk to each other. So that was, that was the beginning of that kind of relationship and then getting to see the job they did it blew me away. They did an incredible job. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. The first time I actually played Sagrada was through the app. Sure. And then I played the physical version. And I love the app. Like, it's my favorite app I have on my phone as far as, like, any kind of gaming yeah. app goes. It's so gorgeous. I take screenshots of it. Like, when you were saying people take pictures yeah. of the game, I take screenshots and I post it, it on, like, Twitter. <laughs> Absolutely. No, they did such an amazing job of even elevating it even more and making like what we were trying to evoke with the light and everything, then they could capture even better in the digital. And also it's just like really fast and fun to just be able to like kind of play a game real quick. And so um, I, I have found more people that have discovered Sagrada because of the app and they can kind of tackle that fear of not knowing the rules. Like it's sometimes intimidating to like sit down to a board game and try to learn it. But yeah. the app does a really good job of walking a person through the rules and getting you familiar with it on your own time and on your own terms that I really think it's, it, it helps break down some barriers. Oh, I completely agree with that. And as far as Sagrada goes, just the entire journey and the experience of it, do you have a favorite and a least favorite moment of the journey? Ooh, oh, that's interesting. I mean, so for me, the I'll start with the, the positive. The My favorite moment was the first time I saw the first piece of art for Sagrada because in our heads, you know, me and Adrian, Adrian does a great job of like finding graphics online and just kind of placeholder spots. Yeah. And so we, we painted our, as best as we could kind of vision for it. Um, but uh, the artist uh, and graphic designer, Peter Woken, he ended up doing end to end everything on the first edition. And then, um, future expansion stuff, Matt Paquette joined in and also helped with the project on some of the later stuff. But the very first time that we ever saw it, it just blew our minds. Like, I just remember being so proud and showing everyone I knew, probably even strangers I didn't know. And I'm sure a ton of people were like, okay, calm down. But for me, like that first chance of getting to see the art to something that in your mind you 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 tried to envision and you and you made it, but then they made it real and they made it you know really shine. That was a really proud moment, and uh, and because I think uh, that art being so phenomenal, it has by far been the biggest reason I think people pick up the box and look at it and then give us a chance. But the first thing is that people fall in love with the art. The second thing, hopefully, is they play it and then they like it. Um, so that, that was huge for us. And it's so pretty that I've had people email me photos of them with tattoos of Sagrada. I've seen birthday cakes. I've seen like, uh, posters and like custom, like the posters and prints on people's walls. Like it, it's really kind of blown me away with socks. I saw someone wow. make custom Sagrada socks, which I'm really jealous of. Um, yeah, just all kinds of really fun stuff. So that's where I'd say uh, seeing the art for the first time is, is one of the greatest moments for me. A low point. Uh, I mean, I guess for me, probably the, the, the lowest point is just the, the, the patience 
of, of finding kind of a home. I know for myself, like, like once you make a game and you're pretty like confident that the game is good, it's, it's disheartening a little to um, pitch it and not have other people catch the vision or not get as excited for it. So hearing a lot of no's yeah. uh, can, can really wear you down. And I know for myself, especially, I kind of take the approach of like pitching to a lot of people. And so that means you're going to hear a lot of no's. And so that that is kind of the worst of it. I think I have thick skin and... I've grown an ability to, you know, sift through and glean the wisdom and kind of listen to the whys and, and hopefully improve my games. But, but hearing no, 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 a lot of times still will wear anyone down. Yeah, that is so true. It's unfortunate when you do see this like gorgeous game inside your head that everyone's taking photos of. So it's like, why isn't this publisher seeing what I'm seeing? Exactly. Wow. And I mean, you've you've worked with what, like 15 plus publishers at this point? You've signed a crazy amount of games. Like what makes a good publishing partner for you? Yeah, I mean, I have been really blessed with getting to work with a lot of different publishers. So um, that's a real, a real humbling thing to just have a lot of different people take a chance on games I've been part of. And also a lot of them have kind of like let me in on kind of the behind the scenes and, um, you know, be part of the creative process if that's just some feedback or checking in with. And, and so I've learned a lot, a lot of, of those publishers willing not only to sign my game, but bring me along, um, has taught me a ton of stuff. So anything from like early on, um, I signed a game called Caffeine Rush with R&R Games. It was the second game I, I ever had signed. And it was actually the very first game I ever made myself. Um, and like they very early on like involved me in just like all the little steps they did. And even though that game has kind of like run its course and I've even received the rights back, I feel like I'm like an old designer because I even have games <laughs> that have run their whole contract. It, you know, yeah. all those things are real humbling moments of just kind of learning kind of how everyone works and questions to ask, you know, anything from, you know, I, I like to think I'm able to advise people on like what things you should ask for in your contracts and kind of like learn from other designers, kind of even some horror stories, unfortunately. But but from all that, you know, that makes us all a little more informed. And we and I try to share that with others and and kind of learn from each of the different kind of publishers that I got to got to at least do a project with. And, and actually, a bunch of them I got to do at least at least one, um, you know, sometimes more than two. So that's also been really fun to get to work with a publisher again. And, and then when you get to work on, you know, another project, you're already building off the relationship you already have. Do you have any like wish lists of publishers you'd like to work with in the future? Oh, yeah. I mean, I got I got a long list. Um, but uh, definitely my biggest thing, which is funny is um, I have I have a, a, a couple games that are in, you know, have partners internationally, but I've never actually signed a game with a publisher not from North America. So especially my dream is to sign some games with some French and German publishers or international publishers. It would be, you know, a dream come true to get something with like a Ravensburger or like a Hansen Gluck 
or um, like a Lucky Duck or you name it. Games or yeah, yeah there's so Amigo, many of them out there. So, Cosmos. <laughs> Cosmos, you got it. Exactly. All these people that I look at my shelf and I go, yeah, I probably have a hundred games from that publisher. Um, and so someday it would be pretty neat to say I have one with a few of those. Um, I, I, I've been blessed with some really great relationships. So the funny part is I've even worked for some of those companies, but I've just never cracked uh, having a, a game signed with one of them. So someday I keep trying. Yeah. And I know you said another episode would be dedicated to you going off and doing the publishing thing, but do you sure. want to do like a little brief? I don't even know. Just talk a little about that. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I definitely am happy to share my experiences. And I think um, for anyone who kind of journeyed along the way, I, I was pretty, pretty blessed with a, a, a pretty awesome experience. But I learned I don't want to be a publisher. Uh, but I, I had a company called Maple Games, and it was part of a network of some published publishers. Uh, Madigo from France was kind of our parent company. And then we also had Colossal. Yeah games and uh, um, grail games and uh, there was a, a few of us surfing maple we all worked together and uh, so maple was a, a, a company that I got to birth um, with actually Peter Woken the artist uh, for Sagrada and so many other games um, he became the creative director for maple and so probably actually the most special thing about it was getting to work for that time with Peter and we also had some other really amazing people along the way that worked with us and just the, you know, a lot of good memories, um, getting to work with them and dream up some cool games. We had some amazing designers that gave us a chance. Uh, we, our first game was a design by Michael Stock, who's one of my favorite German designers. And it was pretty cool to get to make a game with him. Um, where, uh, we also did a game with Chris Leader and Ken Franklin Imagineers. Um, and then we had games signed with Rob Davio, Alan Moon, Roberta Taylor. Uh, we had, you know, people commissioned like Beth Sobel doing art for an upcoming game. We had yeah. Vincent Detroit do art for us. So I got to work with some really amazing people. And that was um, just that experience of kind of balancing every part of a game was really educational learning, you know, dealing with factories in China and dealing with uh, all of the logistics side. Um, my, my CEO was uh, in France. My CFO was uh, Tongi Sierra, who is in San Francisco. And, and uh, for anyone who knows Solar City and like Elon Musk, like he works with Elon. And uh, like there was just like a, some really great moments. Uh, Kira Peevely, uh with Off Ninja Game, she was a CEO for my company for a little bit of time. So like, there was just like some really, uh, humbling, uh, great moments that I got to learn a lot, but, uh, there's also a lot of stories to tell and a lot of things that, uh, yeah, come out of that kind of experience. So, uh, part of what, uh, I've discerned even, you know, years later, kind of licking my wounds and, and learning from it is the understanding where my strengths are and uh, what kind of things I want to do with my time and with my passion. And so I know for myself, like I really care about design and I also really care about uh, designers. So um, my hope is in the future that I can focus my time on supporting other designers and helping companies make great games and probably less to do with 
logistics and finances and all that kind of stuff. I'd, I'd rather leave that to uh, the experts. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree with you there. I tried going down that rabbit hole, but I, I stopped myself a lot earlier. How long did you end up going through that rabbit hole? Yeah, so it was a wild ride and it was kind of uh, like everything I do at 100 miles per hour. Um, the uh, Just to illustrate how quickly it started, for example, when I went to Direwolf for my interview, while I was in Denver, I got a phone call from Tongue Sierra, who was in San Francisco, and he flew me out the next weekend to San Francisco and we signed paperwork um, that next weekend to start Maple Games. And within wow. a month, we were incorporated, legal documents and everything, signing games, and we managed to uh, print, like run two Kickstarters um, and get those into fulfillment. And we were just about to launch our third game. And I think that was a year, a little over a year um, that we did that. And then, uh, yeah, and then we decided to stop. So, yeah, that was, uh, it was a, a blip, a quick kind of a comet in the sky. Yeah. That is really fast. I mean, basically two and a half, three games almost in that short a time. Yeah, we were really excited with uh, the work we did. And, uh, uh, you know, there's definitely um, probably some some months there to just kind of like close up and 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 kind of make sure that um, games ended up in the right places and that files got finished and all that for our second game to fulfill. Because I actually um, left while the, the second game was kind of delivering to people. But um yeah, it was. Uh, we were we were proud of of the games that we made, and we definitely were really excited about the potential of the other games that we wanted to make. That was probably actually for me. Like there was definitely some negative experiences for for me in it, and the only reason I kind of pushed through was because I did. I wanted to honor the people that trusted me with their games, and so sure. I, I probably I probably uh, probably should have kind of read the signs and and stopped earlier but but the stuff that we got to make i was really proud of that is good that it turned out well i mean the games not necessarily everything else but i mean you knew what your strengths were and i mean you keep putting out amazing stuff like when i saw that you were doing the batman game i was like if i was more of a solo person i would have been all over that because i'm such a fan of the whole dark night and all the graphic novels behind it. And you've done a lot of work just like based on your own original ideas and IP games. And it's amazing. Oh, thank you. Like, yeah. I'm glad that you're staying focused and like keeping on designing. Cause if you stop, I'm gonna be a little sad. Not going to lie. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, and I will, I will say like coming out of Maple, it was really fun to get back into design and, and, and a little on the surprising side that I, could jump back in. I was a little worried um, that I kind of made myself a bit obsolete or, or was, you know, going to take a few years to, to find more opportunities again. And thankfully um, out of that, I got some really great, like surprising opportunities, especially when I think back now, Dark Knight was one of those, a, a dream, dream license that what took a couple of years in the making to even, you know, get to this point. Titanic was a really fun project that came out of nowhere. 
that I was really excited to get to design. So there's been some fun licenses and I'm, and I'm also looking forward to some original games that we'll hopefully see see the world in the next year or two. That's so cool. When it comes to the licenses, do you get approached for those or do you just like have a game that happened to have fit it? Because I know with your Sinister Six, you just happen to have had a game that could be reskinned as superheroes. Yeah, no, this is a this is a great uh, question. And, and there's definitely been a few different opportunities that have, it's come at me in a few different ways. So anything from uh, my very first license I ever did was a Back to the Future dice game. I'm a huge Back to the Future fan. Um, not as big as Chris Leader, who's a bigger fan than me, and I have to get say that so that he doesn't attack me for acting like I'm the biggest fan. But I'm a big Back to the Future fan. And uh, uh, it, at the time, um, Matt Riddle and Ben Pinchback had made a Back to the Future game for IDW, and I was so into it that I reached out to IDW and asked, like, is there any chance to do more games because they had the license? And they said, yeah, you know, maybe a dice game. And that alone was enough for me to go, okay, I'm going to chase this. And, <laughs> and so I made a pitch to them, I think, every two days for like a few weeks. Um, and finally, um, they caved and said, you know what? You can just make the game, but just take your time. We don't need to see like a new game every two days. And so, so I worked on that. And, uh, thankfully that was like my first step into getting to do license work. Uh, other stuff, you know, I've either been asked, um, like you mentioned before, like Sinister Six came because I was just, uh, in a conversation with the publisher and they, they mentioned they were looking for a specific type of game. And I just literally sent them all my print and play files, rules, sizzle reel, like the moment after our conversation and it was exactly what they were kind of looking for. So it's just, you know, lucky, you know, right place, right time. And then other times like Titanic, because we had a good experience with Sinister Six, they came back to us and said, Hey, do you want to make another license game? And we had nothing at that point. That was just, Hey, make us a Titanic game. Uh, So sometimes we've been approached. Sometimes we've chased down publishers and begged them, uh, Thankfully, um, you know, a lot of them have worked out, but also I've pitched a ton of games to publishers with license ideas and, and most of the time they get shot down. So, um, it's also just kind of like you take as many shots as you can and you, you take a design and you say like, well, if it could be this world, you know, let's work on designing it that way. And then sometimes that design, if it gets rejected for the license, then we, we adapt or change it to something that's not the license. Like we morph it over time. That is so cool. Is there any dream IP that you would love to work with? Oh yeah. There's a, there's definitely a long list and a few of them that I've gotten pretty close. Uh, I, I was, uh, I was pretty excited and thought I had reached my pinnacle when I signed a game uh, with Mondo Mondo right When they first started making games, they had just announced just Jurassic park and I ended up pitching them a game that ended up, they signed it to be for He-Man. And I okay. was so excited to get to do a He-Man game. Unfortunately, it didn't work out. They lost a license. And ironically now, uh, Come On is doing a He-Man game, which they will get all my money for um, because I will be a sucker for all those amazing minis. Uh, I love it. Uh, but yeah, there's others. Like I would love to do, I've always dreamed about doing like a Transformers game where your minis would actually transform and they'd be, you know, you could use them in their different states in different ways. 
You're just trying uh, to make a game that no one can afford, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I do. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll be really oh, proud God. of. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of like. I, I also I love sports, so I would just love to do a licensed game that actually like has like real players, and yet that seems like that's a tough a tough sell right now. But I can dream. No, for sure. I personally like I like playing sports more than watching sports, so that might not be me. But it's fair. I am very jealous that you've been able to work on something that was DC Marvel because before game design, my dream job was to work for one of those two companies. Just because I was such a freaking nerd, like I loved all my superheroes. I'm about to get a tattoo that is a very obscure, deep cut, like only the nerdiest of the nerds will understand of a Supergirl comic book. <laughs> Amazing. That's so yeah. cool. Yeah. I mean, Dark Knight was like one of the most important books that I could think of that I really thought would be like an amazing game. And the funny part was I got in a long conversation with uh, who was a former VP at Cryptozoic, Adam Splendido about how we thought that would be such a cool game, but it would have to be a solo only game and no one would ever make that. And then after that conversation, he chased down and championed it and fought for it internally at Cryptozoic and with DC and then got me signed on and then ironically left the company to go to the op. So he never even got to work on it. I literally just uh, two days ago was fighting for him. Or not fighting. They said yes right away. But making sure he was mentioned in the credits because he was the one who made it all happen originally. And so um, even that was like just because we both like were nerding out and chatting about it. And at the time, you know, he was like, why haven't we ever worked together? Why haven't you ever pitched pitched anything? And I was like, yeah, you know, like just never seen the right opportunity and and he he made that happen and and then ironically had to leave but i uh i i'm forever in his debt for for that opportunity and and then the neat part was morgan donteville anyone who doesn't know him he's a creative director at Catan, uh actually did work at dc he's a, a credited editor of a number of great great comics he was uh part of batman hush uh he was oh my god i love that one so much (laughs) yeah uh, like his if if people look up his credits he has this great long list of dc credits and that just came out of a conversation when we were at a convention where we were uh sharing like stories from our past and he busted out some story about working at dc and i was like wait a minute what like pause <laughs> and so nice. if i didn't even have that conversation who knows we might never have got to work on dark night together but the minute that opportunity came available i was like oh well i gotta reach out to morgan and say let's make this game together i mean talk about someone who intimately knows you know batman and and cares about the details um i want to work with him so it gave us this huge great excuse to you know almost every night for the last year we we chat for a half an hour to an hour working on little details for every card and for us it matters a lot i'm sure i'm sure some days cryptozoic's like oh, okay enough guys but but we care about all that little stuff and it, it makes it fun so so all i'm hearing is that you two as your second game it's gonna be batman hush right because that I mean, honestly that- might be my favorite batman story and the artwork oh my god if you made I a game not, with that art i would not complain so if uh, if people want 
uh, Batman Hush, then they should uh, bug Cryptozoic. And uh, if they come knocking for us to do a, a Batman Hush game, we would not say no. That's so amazing. I mean, you've done so many cool games, and I know you have plenty more in the works that you can't even talk about. But as far as like being a designer, if you could just offer one piece of advice to other designers, what would it be? Yeah, like, what I, would get them to where you are? Oh, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, not only was I just like, I, I'm continued to be very lucky. And so I, I work hard and I, you know, I work hard to have good luck, but uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's all about people. So I would say whoever you are, just build relationships, but you have no idea, uh, what, uh, what relationships you have now that are going to mean the world down the road. Um, there's so many people that now I look at that are in a variety of incredible roles in this industry and it's fun. And I'm proud to say that like I came up alongside many of them. And then that while, while I say that there was a lot of legends and, and incredible talented people ahead of me that also uh, were welcoming and inclusive that play tested games with me that, you know, shared advice, you know, take people out to a meal, get to know people, you know, uh, use that as an opportunity to be encouraged to hear fun stories, but also just to get a lay of the land to understand, uh, the work that it takes and the time that it takes. Um, persistence, uh, is, is your biggest tool is that, you know, we're all, we're all talented, but persistence is, is going to go a long way to you getting to see the games that you make actually come out in the world. Definitely. I mean, someone who work someone who works hard, a lot of times everyone seems to think that they just get lucky, but it's like you make those opportunities happen because you are reaching out there. You are putting yourself out in the world. And not only are you doing it for yourself, but I mean, you're bringing other people along with you. You've worked with earlier designers. You go on interviews like this to kind of just help other people out. And I feel like that really does move you forward and the rest of the community. And I mean, it's, we're only going to end up with better games if we keep doing these kinds of things. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really, it's, it's quite fun. And I'm really thankful for the number of years that I've got to do this so far. And I think to myself how much more fun it's going to be, you know, what, you know, in another decade from now, getting to see even more people along the way that I got to encourage or, uh, you know, play test one of their games or chat to, um, and, and get to see like more great games blossom. And, uh, I get to design games, but I also love playing games. I'm a, I'm also a customer. I'm also a fan. So, um, more great games just means less games that I, I feel compelled to design because they're already out there. So then I can just focus on the few that, that I come up with. <laughs> and so you can get a little bit of sleep. Yeah, sleep's, sleep's a good thing, too. Oh, my goodness. And are there any games that you're currently working on that listeners should be looking out for? Oh, uh, that's a good question. Unfortunately, I hate this answer, but I don't think I can talk about anything that I'm working on right now. So that's kind of weird because I, I always hated when people said that in interviews, and now I'm that guy. So I'm sorry. Yeah. But, I uh, mean... You, ca- you talked about Seven Summits. That just came out. Um, yeah. I wasn't sure if maybe you're like doing any development work on something you can talk about. Uh, you know, oh, here's one that I can mention. I mentioned uh, Wolfgang Kramer and I have a game coming out. Uh, it is with Arcane Wonders. And um, it is actually a, a remake 
of a former uh, game that Wolfgang Kramer made that had the title, I don't know how you say it in German, so I'll, I would butcher it if I say it, but it's spelled A-U-F space A-C-H-S-E. And it was a tr- it basically translates to like trucking. And it was a game about a pickup and delivery of trucking games. We reimagined it and have set it into the world of uh, kind of a, a magical fairy-ish kind of world of Scotland. And it's called Ley Lines. And uh, I'm really pumped about the work they're doing right now, the development work. Walter is an incredible developer uh, with Arcane uh, Wonders. And and so that game hopefully will surface up. And I'm also working on a game with Elk Creek uh, that's a beaver worker placement game. It felt right as a Canadian to be making a beaver game. So it's it does feel right. It 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 feels so good, and it's a it's set in the Sweetwater Grove universe where uh, Honey Buzz is. So we're pretty pumped about that game as well. So that's a couple announced games, Um, and then and then Dice Theme Park just uh, finished Kickstarter by Alley Cat. See, you had stuff to talk about. Yeah. Thanks again. Like, honestly, this interview was amazing, and you are lucky number episode seventeen of. Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration Publication. And we did feature Sagrada, but I love hearing all the other stories because, I mean, you have plenty to tell to all designers and just game enthusiasts in general. Well, I, I really appreciate you having me on. I'm a fan of of the show and, and it was a real honor and privilege to get to be part of it. Oh my God, yeah. And for anyone who's trying to find you, where can you be reached? Uh, that's a good question. I'm on like Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. I usually... I'm usually by the name Daryl M. Andrews. It looks like Daryl Mandrews. And um, yeah, you can find me there and reach out. Um, M is my middle initial for Michael. Um, and uh, yeah, please, especially if you're a designer or, or thinking about being a designer. Um, I love chatting about games. And, and also, I'm really excited. I just found out that, uh, about my mentees for the Tabletop Mentorship Program. So I'm really excited to be part of that and, and recommend... Um, it's too late for this season, but if, if designers are interested, they could sign up for that in the future as well. I 100% agree because I did that too as both a mentee and a mentor. So no matter what level you're at, it is great to be on both sides of it. Yeah, I'm really excited. This is my first time getting to be a mentor on that, and uh, and I'm really pumped. Oh, I'm sure whoever gets you is going to freak out. Well, thanks again, and thanks everybody for joining us for another episode of Game Design Unboxed Inspiration Publication episode 17 sagrada this has been another episode of game design unboxed inspiration to publication if you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts check out nodirectionpodcast.com join us next time